Hebrews, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9, if you'd like to look there. I had trouble as I worked on this message, a lot of trouble, actually. And I realized the reason yesterday was because I was trying to go on two, down two different streams of thought. I, I really wanted to get to verses 11 through 14, which is the heart of the letter. But to do that meant I had to ignore other things or uh, preach for an hour and a half. So I decided not to do that, and we're going to look at first ten verses, and then I'm anxious to get back next week to verses 11 through 14, really the heart of the the gospel in Hebrews. Let me uh, read for us, though, right now, verses 1 through 10. Now the first covenant, actually the word covenant isn't in the Greek text, it just says now the first um, but if you go back to the previous verse at the end of chapter 8, our author is talking about the covenant, and it's likely still is. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. If you're using another uh, translation, you might find that differently because the Greek says in the first tent and in the second tent. But we're, all, we're talking about, as the NIV rightly uh, discerns, the tent of meeting with its holy place and its most holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we can't discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifice being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying until the time of the new order. When I took a linguistics class in college, a professor taught us that there is more to language than the kinds of things we were studying, like rounded and unrounded vowels and fronted and backed consonants and aspirated and non-aspirated breathings. He taught us that language exists in a context. I remember learning that Eskimos had more than a dozen words for snow, different words. We talk about wet snow, they have a word for that. We talk about drifting snow, they have a word for that. We talk about snow that's good packing, they have a word for that. Because snow is so important to their culture, they have lots of words for it. Their language grew out of their environment and interests because their world is different than ours, their language is different than ours. 
The author of Hebrews uses language that grew out of his world, and it's quite different than ours. You'll find no references to shopping or sports. He hardly mentions possessions or wealth, but because the service of God is so important in his world, he has lots of words for that, like the rare word atonement cover, and the infrequently used New Testament word that the NIV translates as regulations. It's only used here in a couple other places. He alone, among all the New Testament writers, uses the word that's translated as sprinkling, that is, sprinkling with blood. In fact, he uses dozens and dozens of words that we don't find anywhere else in the New Testament. Actually, he uses 150 or so words that only appear in the book of Hebrews and nowhere else in the, in the New Testament. Our author occupied a world where worship rituals were of the utmost importance, and he has language to describe them. But that language is foreign to most of us. We may even feel like it doesn't speak to us, that it's not relevant. But our author's interest isn't merely in rituals, but in the realities those rituals represent. He's not just concerned with rituals of forgiveness, but in experiencing forgiveness. He takes us beyond the worship order of the tabernacle and invites us into God's presence in daily life, in our daily lives. Now, we've been taking Hebrews a chapter at a time and sometimes a a verse at a time. And because of that, it's possible that we have missed one of the fundamental ideas in this letter, one that's overarching. And it's important to our own lives as well. And that idea is that God is organized. He has a plan. There is a past, present, and future to God's plan. He already knows the future and what is to us the past. And he remembers the past and what to us is the present. What this means is that the Lord is a God of method. That actually could be a translation of Isaiah where most translations have God as a God of order. He's a God of method, of order. We may not understand what he's doing now and how it relates to what he's done before or is going to do next, or for that matter, what he's going to do in a thousand years. How could we? We frequently don't know what we're doing from day to day, but God does. We see this idea that the Lord is a God of method throughout Hebrews. The very first verse reads, In the past, God spoke through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken through his Son. There is a past, there's a present, there's a future. There's movement from one to the next, and God is the one guiding that movement. He has a plan. We see that in today's text. There was a covenant And it included highly specific regulations for worship. You will do this. You will not do this. You will do this at this time, but not at another time. Those regulations were not haphazard. They were not chosen out of necessity in the face of some unforeseen circumstance. They were chosen with insight and foreknowledge that corresponded to a future those worshipers could not see or even imagine. When Israel's first priests the sons of Aaron and their sons from the tribe of Levi, first carried out their duty with incense and sacrifices. 
They probably didn't realize there was a deeper meaning to what they were doing, but there was. God planned it that way. He was looking ahead. Now understand that the God who meticulously planned the tabernacle and ordered its worship regulations and did so in light of a future no human could foresee is the same wise God who is at work in your life. He knows what he is doing. He knows how to make things work. We don't follow his instructions merely to stay on his good side, but because his instructions are for our good. He knows all the facts. He knows where life is leading and how best to get there. We may not understand the reason behind his instructions. We may be tempted to exchange them for a way that seems easier or is more culturally acceptable. But if we do, we'll only be hurting ourselves. As Erwin Lutzer once put it, God allows us to play the game. He does not allow us to make the rules. There's a reason for that. If we make the rules, the game soon ceases to make sense. It stops being fun and turns into tedium. God sees the future. He's already there in some sense that we can't comprehend. And he directs our lives in the light of the reality he sees. Only he sees the full picture. Now, there's an obvious contrast in our text between past and present. That contrast, whether you've noticed it or not, has been like a watermark in the background on every page of this letter, starting in that very first verse. In the past, God spoke through the prophets. In these days, he's spoken through his son. When we get to the end of this chapter, it really hasn't appeared much before now, but when we get to the end of this chapter, that ever-present watermark is altered to include the future as well. Within the contrast between past and present are a series of other contrasts which we must try to understand. There is an earthly tabernacle, our author describes it in those first five verses, and a more perfect tabernacle, mentioned in verse 9. There is a flawed high priest, verse 7, of the things that continued for a time, that's verse 10, and a perfect high priest of the good things that have arrived now with the new order, that's verses 10 and 11, things that are eternal. This passage is built around those contrasts between the old order and the new. We're going to take the rest of our time to look at them a little more closely. Under the old order, God had established a tabernacle in which the Levitical priests carried out their responsibilities. Verse 1 calls it an earthly sanctuary. That word earthly is rare in the New Testament, and when it's used, it's almost always used in a negative context. But we don't feel any of that negative context here. We don't see that. The earthly sanctuary was God-ordained. And it was good, but it was earthly nonetheless. It had to be dismantled and moved from time to time. It suffered damage and needed repair. It required continual maintenance. The greater and more perfect tabernacle that Christ entered, that's verse 11, is not made by human hands like the earthly one. It doesn't suffer wear and tear. It's not part of creation. It's the place where God himself dwells. So the first contrast is between the earthly nature of the first tabernacle and the heavenly nature of the second. The next contrast is this. The first tabernacle was a type, a pattern. The second 
was the antitype, the reality. It's the difference between a chart and the ocean, between a road map and the road. It's the difference between the instructions you receive for your child's bicycle for putting it together and the bicycle itself. It's not that the instructions are bad. They're not. In fact, they're extremely helpful. But you can't ride them to town or do wheelies on them. There's a difference. In what sense was the earthly sanctuary a picture of the heavenly one? Our author describes that layout in verses 2 through 5. Look at verse 2. In its first room, in this earthly sanctuary, so picture this. In the tent of meeting, there are these two rooms. They are separated just by a very heavy curtain. In that first room, which our author calls literally the first tent, in that first room were the lampstand, the King James Version says candlestick holder, but there weren't candles in it. There was oil in it with wicks that burned. There was a lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called, verse 2, the holy place. There are no windows in the holy place. So apart from the lamp, it was completely dark. The lampstand was needed for the priest to see in order to perform their service to God. But when Christ came to the earth, he said, I, it's very emphatic, I, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The lampstand pointed to him. It's a picture. It's a type. In that same room was the table with 12 loaves of bread set out on it. Once a week on the Sabbath, the priest would enter and would replace the loaves that were called the bread of the presence with 12 new loaves, and then they would eat the old ones. This reminded them that God's presence sustained them, gave them strength, the bread of the presence. But we also remember that Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread of the presence pointed to him. Remember as we go on that God gave very specific instructions for how to build and furnish this tabernacle. There was a reason behind that specificity. It was meant to point somewhere else, to point to Christ. In the first room of the sanctuary was an altar. The altar stood right before the curtain. And the altar was used on the Day of Atonement, but the priest would go from there into the holy place. Every day the priest went into the holy place and burned incense on the altar. But on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest took incense from that altar along with a censer carrying some live coals and he carried them into the next room, the place called the Holy of Holies, where he burned the incense in the presence of God. In scripture, incense is a picture of prayer rising up to God. The incense reminds us that Christ himself prays for us. He's at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Our author says he ever lives to make intercession for us. The incense pointed to him. Everything pointed to him. Just behind the altar, there was this heavy curtain that concealed the Holy of Holies. Into that place, no one ever entered except the high priest, even he, only on this day, the Day of Atonement. In the Holy of Holies was a box 
three feet, nine inches wide, or long, two feet, three inches wide, two feet, three inches high. This was the Ark of the Covenant. An ark, by the way, when you ever hear the word ark, ark just means box. Noah's ark was a gigantic floating box. But ark sounds better. I mean, can you imagine the, going to the theater to see Raiders of the Lost box? It would have been a flop. This is the box or ark of the covenant. Remember the stone tablets that God gave Moses on which the Ten Commandments were engraved? They were the terms of the covenant. And they were kept inside the Ark of the Covenant, which was kept inside the Holy of Holies, the holiest place. The entire Ark was covered with gold. On top of it were affixed two beautiful gold cherubs, their wings touching. Under them was the atonement cover or mercy seat. We only have that word used twice in the New Testament. One of them is in this passage. It was here that the high priest on the Day of Atonement sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice. So here's the picture. The law within has been broken. And the terms of the covenant violated. But that's not what God sees when he looks at it. He sees the atoning blood. All points forward to Christ. So the earthly sanctuary was a type, a diagram, if you will, of the more perfect sanctuary. That's another contrast between them. There's, there's another between the two. Only priests of the tribe of Levi were permitted to enter the earthly sanctuary. And only the high priest was allowed to enter the holiest place, and that just once a year. No prophet, however great, could enter it. Moses, even though he directed its building, could not enter it. Neither could Peter or Paul. And for that matter, even our Lord himself was not granted into the, the holy place in the earthly sanctuary. The way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, verse 8. But under the good things that have come, verse 11, all of us can be priests and all of us can enter into the presence of God. We're going to see that more clearly when we get to chapter 10. It's one of the main themes of chapter 10. Jesus opened the way. Jesus is the way. Now let me draw two more contrasts. The first covenant, and with it the earthly tabernacle, and the worship regulations that went with it were limited in time. They were temporal. The tabernacle was an illustration, verse 9 says, for the present time. It and its regulations only applied, this is the end of verse 10, until the time of the new order. The time of the new order was inaugurated when Christ died, and the heavy curtain that sealed off the Holy of Holies, the place of God's presence, was torn in half from top to bottom. The illustration was no longer necessary and could be put away like a map folded up and put in the glove compartment when you arrive at your destination. The way to God had been open for everyone. Through Christ. Now, one final contrast. The first covenant, with its earthly tabernacles, worship regulations, was limited in scope. It could only deal with externals. Look at verse 9. The gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper 
They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations. God ordained the first covenant's tabernacle and gave all its regulations. They weren't bad, they were good, but they were preliminary. They were a stage, a step towards something else. The religious actions people took then couldn't reach inside, couldn't change the person. We're going to look at that next week. That would require more than the sacrifice of an animal in a religious ritual. But we must be careful here. Because the religious actions we take now can't change us on the inside either if they're done apart from faith in our great high priest Jesus. If someone were to build a tabernacle exactly like the one described in Exodus, we went to one some years ago, some of us after men's breakfast, there was one quite like it in Indiana we went to see. Only it had blown down in a wind the day before we got there. If someone built a tabernacle like that and started offering sacrifices, I don't think any of us would go there to worship. We'd keep coming to Lockwood because we know that kind of worship belonged to the past. It was about externals. It was a mere shadow of the good things we have in Christ. But we can come to Lockwood and still not get beyond the externals. We can do church the way some people did tabernacle and just go through the motions. We can achieve a good standing among the religious and have no standing at all with God. But Christ didn't die to make us religious people. He died to make us his. Some years ago, there was a woman and her husband, Nancy and David Guthrie, and uh, one of the major magazines ran a story on her called, uh, and called her Job. She lost several of her children, went through great difficulties in her life. When Nancy Guthrie's daughter was born, they knew immediately something was wrong with her. She was club-footed. There were other problems. She and her husband named the baby Hope, but there wasn't much to be hopeful about. Hope was diagnosed with Zellweger's syndrome, for which there is no treatment, no cure. Most children born with Zellweger's live no more than six months. Nancy said to herself, what have I done that God is punishing me? She grew up going to church. She attended a Christian college. She had a job in Christian publishing. She was always doing Christian things, but she wasn't really following Christ. She was just going through the motions. After Hope was born, Nancy began to realize there wasn't just something wrong with Hope. There was something wrong with her. There was a sense of hypocrisy, she said. I was so busy for God and interested in theological things, working with Christian authors and books and working hard at my church, but I wasn't talking to him or listening to him by reading his word. Nancy says that it takes a miracle rescue touch from God to break out of going through the motions. It takes humility, she added, to say what I've been doing hasn't been working. It hasn't been real. Nancy began by telling God, it's been so long since we've talked, and I don't even know how to do this or why you'd want to talk to me. But can we start talking? For Nancy, that meant setting time aside every day for prayer and Bible study. And slowly, she felt the hypocrisy being replaced by a growing desire to know God. The Christian life had just been externals for Nancy, just going through the motions. That changed for her. 
And it can change for us. It must change. The Son of God didn't come so that we would go through the motions, but so that we would enter God's presence. The Son of God didn't die so that we might have church services, but so that we might have life and have it to the full. The Son of God didn't rise so that we could enter heaven some far-off day, but so that heaven could enter us today. We have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens. We have forgiveness of sins. We have grace to live as the children of God. Let's not just go through the motions. Let's pray. I pray, God, you will remind us of these things that are important to us in our lives this week. Bring them to mind. And don't let us be satisfied with less than satisfies you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.